This is your life. This is your life. Right now is your life. Life is about right now. Live and live are spelled the same way. In order to live, you must be live. Right now. The past does not equal the future unless you give the past permission. You are the sum total of your dominant thoughts and decisions. Yes, you are. So, a little birdie told me that you have an out of control sexual behavior of some sort. Pornography, masturbation, fanatization, or some kind of unhealthy sexual behavior. A little birdie also told me that it's starting to get the best of you. And it's not okay anymore. That's good news. It not being okay. Because that's the beginning of how you can change it. We're going to have an adult, grown folk conversation about behaviors, attitudes, decisions, choices, actions to become healthy. Becoming healthy is a journey. It's not a one and none. It's not like this sexual addiction BS that you do where you just get all excited, you do this, and then you blast one. Now, it requires a lot more work than that. It's strategic. It's taking steps. It's reflection. It's looking inside. It's being introspective. It's deciding that you want a better life for yourself. That's what this is about. My name is Joseph F. Price. They call me Joey P. I'm going to be your host in this journey. I'm going to be your partner in this dance. We're going to do this together. We're going to become better people together. You are going to have sexual mastery. You are going to have mastery in your life. Yes, you are. You're going to be a better person. You're going to be somebody that you can be proud of. You're going to be somebody that even your mama can be proud. But it's not going to come free. You're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to do some reflection. I'm going to give you some tools. I'm not going to do it all on my own. I'll bring some guests. They'll give you the good stuff. But here's what you got to do. Take this as a journey, a journey that you get better each and every day, a journey that we don't stop until we figured out how to do it and we become invincible. Yeah, we can become invincible to our pornography at sexual behaviors and unhealthy other addictions. You just got to understand how it works. You got to understand how your mind is making you its bitch. I know you don't like that language, but you're the bitch of your mind. And so this work that we're going to do, 
It's about neutralizing that and you becoming the victor. You becoming the master. You becoming the man that you're supposed to be. That's what I'm talking about. So if that's something that interests you, if that's something that you want to do, then let's do that together. It ain't a one and done. It's a journey. So let's begin. Good afternoon, everybody. Everybody, good afternoon. Good morning. Uh, if that might be the case for you, Joseph F. Price here in the house. I've got some uh, special flavor here. I got a special guest who came by to uh, to tell his story and to remind us that uh, we all can recover and that uh, recovery is a journey. It's a step by journey process. It's a reversal of sorts, and it's an individual reversal. There's been time that you've invested into uh, your addiction, whatever it is. Uh, there's effort that you put into it. That effort's individual. That effort's specific. And so the reversal is um, something that you have to be aware of and actually deliberately do, and when you do it, um, you do have healing and you do have recovery that's sped up by having coaches and therapists and people to support you. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to reversal. But one of the things I uh, want to take a look at today, um, and it's kind of a, a theme that I'm noticing, and I don't know if I put it out there um, to you in such a way where it's really clear, but um, I happen to be a behavior scientist, like foremost, like that's where I start with. And that's how I got into this, uh, through the back door without the story. You're not going to get the story today. You can go back uh, to a couple episodes and get the story. But one of the things I like to do is actually really study people. And, and I, I've been studying, uh, clients and I've been studying, uh, patterns and I've been studying what happens a lot of times uh, with addicts, uh, porn addicts specifically. And so uh, we all start out some kind of way. We call it vanilla porn where, well, maybe it was looking at a, a still image and then it progressed into what it progressed to movies. But then at some point in time, uh, it progresses for some people out of the porn. See, because what we know uh, is that you have sexual addiction. Think of that as an umbrella. And then think of the uh, gateway to all of the various uh, prongs of sex addiction. Think of the gateway to that as porn. And then uh, when people get out of porn, it manifests itself into all different things. Strip clubs, you know, all kinds of different things. Some people, it's just uh, getting, you know, 15 terabytes and methodically having a cache. For some people, uh, it's other things. For some people, it's illegal things. For some people, it's chat rooms. We have an earlier session where somebody spent $200,000. So my guest today, uh, his pornography use uh, graduated into um, buying uh, sex workers. So 
without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to a wonderful uh, gentleman that uh, graciously decided that he was going to spend some time with us, uh, Mr. Alan Texera. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly, sir? You absolutely did. Okay, Thank you. Good. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to have you with me. So I guess, you know, right out the gate, uh, you know, you can go ahead and do your thing and tell me your story. How did you get here? And yeah. Wow. Do it, do it any way you want. Well, I appreciate the introduction. Um, I will let your audience know that when I talk about the time in my life when I, I quote unquote left porn and went to direct sex buying, um, I use the term metastasized instead of graduating. Because it is really like a disease. Um, so, you know, it's not easy for me to get out here and, you know, spill my guts and, and talk about this. Um, it's embarrassing. Um, it was shameful until I understood my why at its root. And uh, I learned a lot about addiction, uh, what makes an addict, and... Um, my therapist um, in group therapy actually said several months into my healing journey that um, that I was a textbook case and that I really had no chance at avoiding, you know, where my life went uh, with this problem uh, until I got the right kind of help. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, addiction... Uh, it's really uh, driven by uh, anger and, and grievances and unmet needs that a person may have, typically in their family of origin. Uh, our families of origin are not perfect. Um, and this was the case for me. Uh, when I was born, my mother was ill. Um, she was um, bipolar. Back then, they called it manic depressive. And um, we lived in, uh, you know, um, a time, uh, you know, I can't really blame the doctors or anything like that, uh, but the treatment for manic depression has moved quite a bit over the decades. So back in the 70s, they had limited medicines. Uh, my mother took lithium and uh, she was not 100% compliant, you know, with uh, with her medicines. Uh, she, uh, just like an addict, she had stigma and shame about the disease. She didn't want to admit it. Um, at that time, she was pretty young, you know, mid-20s. And uh, so she, um, as a result, ended up really being over-medicated most of the time, which meant she was depressed mm -hmm. and not able to really participate in the family at all. Certainly not as uh, a parent. Uh, she couldn't engage with me or do anything to enrich me. And she wasn't even functioning as an adult in the marriage. You know, my dad pretty much had to take care of her. So that put me in a pretty bad spot. Um, you know, I needed her just like any little boy would need his mom. Uh, I wanted her to hold me and touch me and love on me and, you know, do things with me and take care of me and all that. And she just didn't. And uh, so I was left trying to process this withholding that I was seeing from her. And as a young toddler, you know, you, could, you don't understand illness and that it's not her fault you know it was only through good quality christian therapy much later in life in fact only a few years ago that i was able to move 
the grievance and the blame I felt against my mother off of her and just onto the fact that she had a disease. And that did a lot uh, for, you know, how I processed my memory of her. Um, so I had that life wound uh, of neglect, uh, feelings of abandonment, feelings of not being worthy. It all came out of this. Um, to make matters a little worse, and this is another ingredient in what can build an addict, you know, my dad was very authoritarian in how he dealt with me. Um, he's a good guy, but let's face it, you know, he was the only breadwinner. He was essentially a single parent because my mother wasn't participating. And he really had to deal with three kids on his own. There was me, my little brother, and my mom, who, because of her ailments, really uh, presented as another child for him to deal with. Um, so he was stressed. He was always stressed out. And, uh, you know, he just didn't have time to... Uh, to parent me in, in a way that, you know, we would like to see that required more patience. Uh, I lived in a house that was all about rules and not relationship. I was to be seen and not heard. I didn't have anywhere to express my feelings. And um, when things got bad, whether, uh, you know, if I did something that was wrong and it was appropriate for him to discipline me, he tended to overreact. And, you know, there was some harsh physical discipline. Um, but really, the, the the worst experiences I had as I got a little older is uh, my mother would have um, these episodes where she would es escalate into mania. And those were uh, particularly hurtful because as a depressed manic depressive moves from that depressed state to mania, there's a couple days there in the middle when they're normal. And those days were great. It was like I had my mom back and she would do art projects with me and engage with me. And I just loved it. But it didn't last. Uh, after that short window, you know, she was off the rails in a manic episode and she did some things that were very hurtful to me uh, physically and emotionally and even sexually. So I had those types of wounds. And I think that by itself, you know, would have been enough uh, to set the table for me to become an addict. And I probably would have had um, some demonstration of sex addiction or porn addiction just with that. But um, as I moved into my teen years and young adult uh, part of my life, I also had the misfortune of suffering two what I consider to be very severe traumas. Uh, the first was... Um, was this uh, at the age of 15 we moved from Massachusetts to uh, Gainesville Florida and because of that move my mom had to find new doctors for her bipolar and um, she did uh, just that and those new doctors were aware of new medicines and they just sort of readdressed her problem from scratch and they did it much better than what had been done previously and uh, she really got well and uh, so for about a year, when I, from 15 to 16, my mom was available, she was engaged, our relationship started to develop, her marriage with my father blossomed. And as a family, we were really happy, happier and more functional than we had ever been. And then uh, Christmas Eve, 1983, when I was 16, she suddenly 
um, choked to death at the Christmas Eve dinner table. Um, and it was just an unforeseen and kind of terrible thing. None of the adults at that dinner really knew what to do. Um, I was going for my Eagle Scout rank and I had gotten a lot of first responder life-saving type training. And so it fell to me to help my mother. And um, so I had the experience of uh, trying to clear her blockage, doing the Heimlich maneuver. And after she ultimately passed out performing CPR um, because of the holiday, um, there just was a slow response time. They didn't have a full complement of ambulance crews in our town. It was just one. And uh, it took time for them to come and relieve me. But I did the job well. Uh, my mother was alive and she had good color when they relieved me after 15 minutes of CPR. Wow. But, but sadly, uh, she expired in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Mm. So that was tough. You know, I, I went, I can remember my little brother, when he saw me working on her, he just freaked out. He was 12 at the time. He was just screaming and he ran into his room and hid under his bed. Um, after the ambulance left, my father and my my uh, aunt, my mom's sister, went um, in the ambulance with her. And so that just left my uncle. And uh, my girlfriend and I were at that dinner and she and I went into my bedroom and we were talking and she wanted to go to her house um, just so she could be with her parents and she invited me to go. And so my uncle stayed with my brother and she just lived around the block. We walked over there and, uh, you know, her parents were downplaying, downplaying it. They were telling me, you know, people cough all the time. And I said, she didn't cough. I said, she choked. I'm using the medical definition. She choked. It's not good. And uh, that conversation didn't really get to develop and the phone rang and it was my dad. You know, he was back at home and he said, you have to come home. So uh, it was unseasonably cold that night. You know, we're in North Florida. It was like 28 degrees. That's oh, really wow. cold for, you know, Gainesville, Florida. Probably only gets that cold once a decade. And uh, so uh, I'm walking home and I turn the corner to get back to my house. And I just, I'll never forget. I have this real surreal image in my head of uh, looking at my front yard. We had a you know, a lamp out in the front yard to light the walkway. And next to the lamp was um, actually in front of it was like the, my dad and our priest from church. And they were talking and, you know, their breath was making plumes because it mm -hmm. was that cold. And it was a silhouette because, you know, the light was candling them. And, you know, I recognized the priest right away and I knew he would not be there unless my mother had died. Oh, so, yeah, so that's how I found out, you know, essentially before anybody told me. Uh, but when I got home, you know, my dad brought my brother and I into the living room and he told us what happened. And, you know, I just tried to be the strong one, you know, I tried mm -hmm. to support my dad and um, my brother, but I, I did not deal with those feelings. I did not grieve properly. So then yeah, you I, say that you had number two. You had, uh, yeah, well. Which equals a double whammy in my Yeah, uh, so that girlfriend and I didn't work out, but there was another girl in, in the neighborhood that I formed a relationship with around the time high school was ending for me. And uh, 
you know, neither of these girls were emotionally healthy. Um, yeah, I just didn't have the equipment. I think they weren't emotionally to, healthy because you weren't emotionally healthy right, and exactly. you attracted somebody that wasn't right. emotionally healthy. Okay, exactly. Ahead. So these were toxic relationships that never really should have been. But that second relationship uh, with uh, Lynn, uh, she and I got married, and uh, it was just a bad mix. It was a bad match, and uh, I was under constant inhumane amounts of stress. She wasn't really capable of keeping a job uh, at that time in her life, and um, you know, so we had financial problems and all of this. Um, when I finished graduate school, we moved to uh, Wilson, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and I started my career up there with Cargill, and uh, things were going really well professionally um but we we had this sense of we had two daughters at the time of this tragedy they were four just under two and uh you know we had this day planned out um where uh i had a very important and high pressure meeting um in the afternoon starting at one o'clock it was a, a round robin of um personnel type interviews, re well, reviews. They were annual reviews for the people that would be eventually on my staff. I was training to take over for an office manager there. And uh, one of the ladies on that um, staff in particular was a, a woman of color who had legitimate performance issues going on and uh, they needed to be addressed. And she knew they needed to be addressed, but she was trying to make it about race when it wasn't and that was a very high pressure and stressful situation for me to deal with as a young kind of junior executive so i was stressing the meeting um we were a one car family and and, and uh the plan was that uh my wife was going to go with the older daughter to go shopping and do some errands in the afternoon with the family car so since i took that car to work i needed to come home for lunch and uh, the plan was the kids would be ready and she would have uh, lunch made up for me. And we'd all just pack into the car. I would ride shotgun and eat my lunch on the way back to my office where she dropped me off. And then she was going to take the younger one to daycare um, because it was important to her to just have this afternoon with the older daughter. There are deeper issues there where uh, you know, she just didn't bond properly with the second child and she didn't want to, and I'm using her words, didn't want to deal with her. Mm -hmm. uh, very unhealthy. But, um, and to make matters even more complicated, uh, she had burned bridges and rubbed people the wrong way at the daycare that we had been using. So she had recently found a new one that I wasn't familiar with. And it was this new daycare that, you know, she wanted to use that afternoon. So when I got home uh, at lunch, like we had planned, um, you know, none of that stuff was happening the way we planned. Uh, she was not Life responding. Life usually to, works out. Yeah, yeah that's right. Not the way you planned. It was not the way we planned. So she wasn't uh, answering the door, and it turns out she wasn't even awake uh, because she suffered from depression too, just like my own mother. So, you know, there's a deeper story there also, right? Mm -hmm. but uh it was before cell phones so i was like you see in the movies i was throwing pebbles up to the master 
bedroom window to rouse her out of bed. And she finally came down. She was very angry, you know, that I had done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, but um, our little one, Lauren, uh, was in her crib. And it was obvious to me she had not been cared for all morning. She was uh, hungry and in a, a diaper that needed to be changed. And it looked like that had been the case all morning. Um, the older daughter was just in her room playing. She was very good at occupying herself. So she was sort of self-soothing with some games. And so I was trying to come up with an audible to deal with the situation. And the audible was, uh, go get yourself dressed and get Ashley ready. I'll take care of the baby. I'll change her diaper. I'll bathe her. I'll close her. I'll pack the diaper bag. I'll feed her and meet me down here in like 15 to 20 minutes, you know, I'll throw together a sandwich for myself and then we'll get in the car and leave. And she said, fine, that's great. About 20 minutes go by. I finished doing all those things that I had agreed to. And I I called for her and she comes back down and um, she had just gone back to bed. She was still in her nightgown. And she said, look, I'll just do this stuff another day. Go back to the office. But I need you to take Lauren, the younger one, to the daycare Mm -hmm. because I don't I don't want to deal with her she wanted to go back to sleep basically yeah so you know this was highly disturbing to me um so i uh grabbed uh my little daughter and the diaper bag and uh, i went to the car and I, i put her in the car seat which was really directly behind me on the on the back seat driver's side and i uh put the diaper bag in the car and then I got into the, you know, driver's side and I was preparing to back out and uh, I hear this tapping noise and I, I look across to the house and her big sister had um, gotten the stool out of the kitchen and put it up to the dining room window. And so she could stand up over the sill and she was waving goodbye to us, mm. which she had never done before. But uh, that's another thing I'll never forget. So, you know, I back out of the driveway and I'm heading over to uh, the daycare, which was actually the same way that I would go to go to work Mm -hmm. until this one major intersection in our town. And I uh, I was just under an inhumane amount of stress, just consumed with this problem. You know, I'm the only one making money. She can't hold a job. The only way I can take care of the kids for her is if I quit my job and then we won't have any money. My parents had offered to help, but she wouldn't allow that. Her family, her parents just did not want to admit that there was a problem. They didn't want to admit that their princess was depressed, that she needed therapy and maybe some medicine. Uh, they just would not go there. So the, the normal recourses you would think of were um Ignored. You know, just, yeah, not available to me. They mm-hmm. wouldn't consider them. So then really the only healthy option I had left was really to separate from her and take the kids. Problem was, I, I wasn't healthy. I couldn't consider that option. She was my only acceptable sexual outlet, and I didn't want to lose that. Mm-hmm. And because of the way my sex addiction, even though I didn't know it existed, played into my decision-making at that time in my life when I was still very immature, mm-hmm. you know, it was just incredibly damaging. 
So uh, tell me I, I what happened to that just morning. Take on all the stress. Well, yeah, this is. I mean, the... around 12:30, 12:45 in the afternoon. So I start driving to the daycare, and um, we get to that big intersection, and it's backed up. There's, I want to say, three or four light cycle delays, and during this time, poor little Lauren had fallen asleep, mm. and so she was in a place in the back seat where I didn't couldn't see her normally like if i checked the rear view she wasn't in that field of view and she wasn't making any noise and uh when it was finally my turn to go and make the right turn to this new daycare i hadn't been to before i can't explain what happened but i just went straight which was the way i normally went to work out of habit yeah habits are, yeah. Yeah. are they call are this that a, branded just yeah, like they you. call this a habit memory failure is what they call it yeah um, yeah and and you know you had said something somewhere else I read um, about the addiction process and paths. Tell me about and that what? before you t about and, the addiction say, process and like walking through a field of grass. Tell, tell oh yeah, yeah 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 we can go there yeah um I thought that was a great so uh, yeah there's this um, analogy uh, we use in our groups when we're talking about the neuroplasticity of the brain. Because what most people don't understand with pornography is uh, when a guy watches pornography for the first time, you know, that's a moral failing. It's a, it's a poor decision. A lot of guys make it. But as soon as you see porn, even for the first time, it changes your brain. It changes the pathways uh, and the structure of it. It starts to atrophy uh, just like a heroin addict and you build snapses and pathways of thinking that are geared to consuming porn and they grow and because they grow it makes you want to go there again and again so what starts off as a moral problem very quickly becomes a medical problem and then so the analogy we use is like imagine a field out in the middle of the woods uh what happens to that field pristine field if you walk across it on the same path every day for like a year it gets worn yeah i say well a path forms a pathway it gets worn you were like right and what happens if you stop walking every day for a couple of months and they're like well the path starts to grow over again right it starts to heal and that's exactly how our brain works because i mean every part of our body every muscle every neuron every tendon everything is plastic it can be damaged, but it can be healed. And this is the key to recovering from pornography. You need to abstain and do a long period of sobriety to give your brain a chance to heal those pathways. And when you do that in combination with lots of other things, like coming out of isolation, forming connections and relationships with other healthy men, studying the material about uh, how to overcome the addiction, strengthening your relationship with God, you do all these things together, and you can pull out of it, but you need community to pull out of it. You, you can't really do it alone. And so many guys are just white knuckling it and trying to do it alone. You know, it doesn't work. So what essentially happened to me that day, it was explained to me by a doctor. There's a um, Amazon Prime movie called uh, uh, The Death of a Child. Now, I don't usually watch these things because... This is a painful subject for me, right? I don't it's like to. Triggering. It's triggering. You don't yeah, I, I just don't want to watch movies where kids die or anything like that. But something told me to give this one a try. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was not only about parents who suffer the death of a child, but parents who suffer the death of a child because of their own negligence. Mm. And specifically that they uh, left a, an, an infant or a toddler in a car and attended that got overheated. And that, that's obviously that's what happened to me when I went straight through that intersection and I went to work and uh, I rushed into that important meeting that I was late for and I didn't see her. And I stayed there on task for five hours. I was the last manager to leave. And of course I discovered my little girl passed away when I went to go home for the day. So what happens, it's, it's like this. We actually have two memories, two types of memory in our brain. One is governed by the hypothalamus and the other is governed by the basis ganglion. The hypothalamus handles your executive memory, your to-do list. What are the things I want to accomplish today? What's the sequence? What are the prerequisites for each thing? Like, what do I got to remember to bring? All that stuff, that executive agenda is contained in the hypothalamus. And we operate on that all day long. But the basis ganglia has these subroutines for things you do frequently. Like when you drive to work, for example, nobody thinks about their drive to work. It's rote memory, right? Mm -hmm. You, you could arrive somewhere that you've gone to a hundred times, whether you're going to work or going home, and you don't remember the details of that trip, really. You just arrive, right? You know, you'd so be overwhelmed works, if you had yeah, to do all of that. Yeah. So the, the, the way it works is like this you're operating on that executive agenda memory in your hypothalamus. Uh, so you go into McDonald's to get lunch to go, and they hand you a bag and a diet soda, right? And you go walking out to the car. Well, car's locked and your keys are in your pocket. So most people will take that drink and put it on the roof of the car, shuffle for their keys, unlock the car and get in. Well, the moment you go for your keys, it initiates the basis ganglia and that subroutine to drive wherever it is you're going to drive next. And that takes precedence over the um, executive agenda in your hypothalamus. And you see it all the time. People will leave their purse on top of the car. They'll leave the Diet Coke or whatever on top of the car, and they'll drive off, <laughs> you know, because the basis ganglia has to get over. So this happens all the time with, with innocent consequences. Mm -hmm. But this is what happened to me, and it's happened to countless, a lot. Yeah, yeah, like fourteen hundred people in the mm -hmm. last thirty years, um, and it only started happening when airbag technology became widely available or standard in the cars. Uh, once that back before then, like in the 60s, people would put a baby seat in the front so they could, you know, take care of their baby. But when they oh, put a, so when they put an airbag in the front, that'll kill a baby if it goes off. So that's when we all started putting babies in the back and yeah. when babies started falling asleep and we couldn't see them and they accidentally got left behind. And that's when that started about 30 years ago. Yeah. Hmm. And there's things you can do to mitigate that. But um, unfortunately, this is what happened to me. And it. uh it was just devastating. It was well, the worst. That's a, as Dr. Phil would say, that's a life-defining moment. Yeah, it changed everything. Yeah. So I will say, though, that even though that was the worst day of my life. That was the beginning of the best days of your life. It was, but I did have one of my finest moments in the midst of all that tragedy, and it was this. When I found her, I uh, picked her up. And I went straight back into the building 
and I called the police on myself. I didn't lie. I didn't hide. I didn't try to figure out some way to get away with it. You know, I knew that what I did was not on purpose. And I knew that there were a lot of people that weren't going to believe that. And I knew that this was going to change everything. But I also knew I had to do the right thing. And I did that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and I, go ahead. I was to say, I just think that speaks volumes of who I am at my core that I didn't run from that tragedy. Mm-hmm. And and I do think it, it was a pretty sorry day, but and when you look back, that probably was the day that stuff started to begin to change in some kind of way. Uh, it probably got worse before it got better. So if you can walk me through and take about like five minutes to walk me through your porn journey up to yeah. what you're so, doing now. Yeah, I uh, was exposed to porn uh, at very early age. So, you know, like I explained, my mother was depressed all the time, so I was never supervised. Mm-hmm. And at the age of six years old, a good friend of mine and I were out just exploring and we came across a stash of pornography. Oh. A grocery bag, you know, about a cubic foot of Playboy penthouse type magazines, which, you know, were pretty explicit. Um, so uh, that's very damaging to a child of six. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you can't really process what you're looking at. But it was alluring and interesting. And, you know, and I gazed at the images and they attracted me. And uh, so quite naturally, when I sexually matured, I sought that out. And um, I I noticed how good I felt when I had an orgasm. And so I just slipped into this habit and uh, of, uh, you know, masturbating to self-soothe how badly I felt about things. I mean, I didn't even realize how much I was hurting mm-hmm. back then, you know, because like a fish doesn't know it's wet. But, you know, I just felt the need to feel better. And this was a way that I could feel better. As the years went on with technology, you know, those magazines became videos, right? And then uh, when the internet came, the uh, variety of pornography genre that was available and the level of how explicit it was that all deepened right mm-hmm. and, and so let me ask you was- a question because you're more uh knowledgeable about facts than i what, yeah, what how many different titles do you think that there are in porn i mean the last count that you got <laughs> this is the last count that's all i don't know, all. I, don't know. The last I saw a statistic from like five years ago that said uh, if you watched all the pornography that has ever been produced by mankind, you would have to watch a continuous stream about 192 years now. Yeah, I know. And, and that's, that, that's an old yeah. statistic. Yeah. I don't know about the number of titles, but in group, uh, my um, therapist, Dave Hudson, he would joke, you know, that you could watch one-legged clown midget porn if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's everything is out there. Yeah. And we, we laugh at that. But the, the, the truth is that the genre of porn that a guy gravitates to actually informs the wounds that he's medicating, even if he can't remember what happened. Wow. And a good sex therapist knows that. And, uh, you know, they'll talk to him about it. You know, for me, it's uh, anything uh, where um, the woman is uh, completely submitting to me and gazing into my eyes. That's my trigger. 
and it shouldn't be any surprise. You know, I, I needed a mother who would be dedicated to me and take care of me and gaze into my eyes. And I never got one. Hmm. So, you know, that's what drove me, uh, that type of pornography. I was never into anything like is unfortunately prevalent today with the sexual violence and degrading women. Uh, none of that ever um, attracted me. But um, nevertheless, it's still damaging. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did, uh, see, because somehow masturbating and just watching porn didn't get it for you at some point in time. So, how, you know, how did right. it gravitate well, so to my problem? Uh, and this is true for a lot of guys. Uh, they actually suffer from what's called an intimacy disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know how to really open themselves up and communicate and relate to a woman the way a woman would want them to. And it becomes, therefore, very difficult for them to secure uh, a relationship that includes sexual intimacy. But, you know, physically and physiologically, we still want sex. And so uh, you can, like I did, metastasize out of a porn addiction into um, buying sex directly. Or if you don't buy it, you know, some guys will just have affairs with women who want to have affairs or they'll um you know is you know like tinder and all these things the casual sex sites they'll go that route but what's happening is those magazines i viewed when i was six that was two-dimensional all the pornography on the videos and the internet that's Mm three-dimensional when you involve another person a living breathing woman she's warm you can see her feel her that's four-dimensional and so you've just found a better way to lie to yourself that you're enjoying true intimacy. It's not true intimacy. It's still pseudo intimacy. You're still faking it because you, you don't know how to have real intimacy and or you can't trust another person enough to go there. So so you go the transactional route or the casual route. And uh, then meaningless. Next, yeah. And then you, you. I mean, I just want to hear it out of your mouth. You've what happens is just the same way that people masturbate as an addiction. It becomes something compelling that, that takes over their life, even when they know they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. I got to a point where I would try to use pornography to avoid being with a prostitute because I knew it was wrong or I couldn't afford it. And then the pornography would just trigger me to go do it anyway. And so it didn't take long, but then being with a, a real woman in person, However, I needed to do that was my preference, preferential way of acting out, not the pornography anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I was healing and reaching sobriety, my sobriety date for pornography predates my sobriety date with women, with prostitutes okay. by about four months. Mm-hmm. And we see that in the data that I ultimately collected on other men uh, through my nonprofit. And, and that's something that will be the subject of our next talk. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, that makes sense. And see that the problem is, is that's exactly what it takes to be successful. A lot of times guys that were doing what you were doing, they try to take it all off the, the, the plate all at once. And then it never works. What you did was one, two, three, and that's how you got them off the plate. You, 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 you yeah. mastered one thing and then you went to the next thing and then mm-hmm. you went to the next thing. Now I call it the day of reckoning 
it's the catalyst for change. So tell me yep. about the day of uh, reckoning. All right. So we're going back almost five years. This was Easter season of 2018. Um, uh, at that time, I was um, still um, attending the Catholic Church. Uh, I made a change and left the Catholic Church shortly after this that I'm telling you about. But <clears throat> we were at a Catholic Church in Tampa. It was Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were at that point in the Catholic Mass, and the priests invited everybody for a silent prayer for their own intentions. Okay. I, at that time, was absolutely fed up with this addiction. I had tried and tried and tried to stop on my own, and I couldn't. And I, I sincerely prayed the most intense prayer of my life at that Palm Sunday church service. And I begged God to take it away from me. And I, I, I said, I'm not bargaining. I know you're not just going to take it away without consequences. There's a lot of really heavy chips that are going to fall. And I know that you'll help me pick up and deal with each of those chips, but I, this has to stop. And um, that next week between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, all kinds of things started going crazy. You know, I was working too hard with my business and the, the tax prep because of the business was a huge burden and it was already deep into March. And, you know, I, we had to file within three or four weeks. And so I uh, met a lady uh, when I was at breakfast at McDonald's who was um, just asking for work. And uh, <clears throat> so she wanted, you know, to make some money. And, you know, I tried to be, very uh forthright with this so i gave her my card i told her to share it with her husband that i had data entry work for her to do to help me prepare my taxes and um that i would pay her like ten dollars an hour and if he was okay with it uh then i would hire her and if he needed to meet me that would be fine mm -hmm. uh but i didn't tell my wife about this so uh, you know she did all that and then you know she texted me back and said yeah she wanted to get started and, and when could we meet? And my wife saw that text. And, you know, obviously at this point she was very suspicious that things were going on outside the marriage. Cause she's a smart lady and you really can't hide this. I mean, women right, know, right. they may not confront you, but they know. Mm -hmm. they do. And uh, yeah. Um, funny thing we say in group uh, in, in the newer trilogy of Star Wars, the character uh, Finn gets confronted by Han Solo when he says, uh, you got another problem. And he says, what's that? He said, women always find out the truth. Always. They do. They do. Yeah, that's a good quote. It's like like, so, uh, like when you're smart, you just learn how to yeah. make so, sure that they don't have to find out the truth. Yeah, so we then that's, down, that way your ride is a little bit smoother. That's right. We traveled down to South Florida uh, to have Easter at my wife's brother's house. And... Um, she confronted me on that trip. Uh, it was like, it was Saturday morning. Um, and, and she asked me if I had had sex outside the marriage, just wide open, not a specific person, just have you had sex outside of our marriage? And um, I just felt convicted that I had to tell her the truth and accept the consequences. Mm -hmm. So I, I told her yes. And she didn't speak to me because our, our little girl ran into the bathroom where this conversation was taking place. And at that time she was like five, you know, 
So we just stopped talking about it. Uh, later in the day and the afternoon, her brother and his wife took our little one uh, into a store and they were watching her and she got in the car with me and she leaned over and said, this is what's going to happen. We're getting divorced. I'm taking Rosie away from you and you're going to pay alimony and child support. I mean, she was furious. Mm -hmm. She was scorned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, this was so hard, man. I felt I really felt like I was being crucified just like Jesus that weekend. Mm -hmm. And I woke up Sunday morning and um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I couldn't go and like face the family because she wrote this long letter that she gave to them exposing me and telling them everything. Um, so, uh, I just walked, I went for a long walk around the area where our hotel was. And uh, I probably ended up walking 15 miles, but uh, you know, I left at seven in the morning and, uh, I called my friend, Rusty Adshade, who lives out in Wyoming. And I, he was in the middle of his spiritual breakfast. It was 5 a.m. for him, but he took the call. Mm -hmm. And he stayed on the phone with me for like two hours. And uh, even after we got off the phone, I kept walking. I probably walked for four hours, just trying to process everything that was happening. In a way, you know, I was being resurrected then too, because that was the beginning of... Uh, bringing my behavior into the light and being honest about it, which mm -hmm. is, that's where the healing starts. You have to stop the isolation. You have to stop the lying. You have to stop the hiding. You need to find a group of men that you can trust. And, and there are several groups that are designed for just this purpose where you can share your story and share your pain and all the nasty things that you've done where you can become fully known and fully loved for the first time. And it's a beautiful thing because all of this sexual acting out and impropriety and addiction, it comes from wounds. We were wounded, usually as little young people. We were wounded in community. Therefore, we need to be healed in community. And there's really no natural mechanism for this because we live such isolated lives but uh in our recovery groups we we, we create that dynamic and uh there are um thousands of men all over the country um participating in this kind of process in an effort to get well and to get healed yeah that's some fantastic uh work that you guys are doing um so tell me how your recovery evolved to where it is that you're actually serving men in the way that you serve them and tell me about your organization and how you serve these men. Well, um, this, I guess the silver lining of my wife and I separating was that I was finally free to pursue my healing journey. Um, you know, I knew I had a problem. I even approached my wife about going to celebrate recovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, she forbade it at the time. She didn't like the stigma or the shame associated with that. She didn't want me to go into any type of a group. But that's obviously what I needed. So when she asked for the divorce and I moved out of the house, I was free to do that. And I did. And uh, I enjoyed Celebrate Recovery. Um, 
And I met a gentleman there who invited me to a sex therapy group nearby. And so I went, uh, the celebrate recovery was on Monday nights. This group was on Thursday night. And uh, so I went to David Hudson's sex therapy group, um, at his, uh, Christian counseling office in Wesley chapel. Oh, okay. And, and when I experienced what that group was like, I, I just never went back to celebrate recovery. Okay. And, yeah, that's, uh, I'm not that's... saying anything bad about Celebrate Recovery, but it's in the name. It's celebrating after you've recovered. Right. And I hadn't recovered. I needed to heal. And the resources that are necessary for healing go way deeper than the scope of CR. Mm-hmm. And I recognized that. So I went to the sex therapy group and uh, I met another gentleman there. And um, I ended up joining his church and we started a Pure Desire Recovery group there. And so I was doing two groups um, uh, and I worked very hard through the remainder of 2018 and all through 2019 and everybody's um, recovery is different right yeah oh yeah it's very personal it's like your fingerprint that's a good way to put it that's a real but i will tell you um that uh, that divorce went final in december of 18 mm-hmm. but by november of 19 uh my wife had seen such a change in me with the progress i was making in my recovery that she wanted to reunify see that's a success uh, story that's why we have you on here it is uh, i will tell you she always wanted to reunify in may of um 2018 like a month after i was served with divorce papers she wanted to talk to me about other options Mm -hmm. and i think what she wanted was a a long-term separation with the intent of reunifying if and only if I could overcome the addiction and stop my behavior. Um, she didn't say that, but when she started talking about other options, uh, I told her no. I know most people were like, what? <laughs> Why would you do that? But, but here's where I was. At that time in my life, I believed in my heart that what I was dealing with could not be fixed. I was out of control. I was convinced I was going to die because of it, probably of AIDS, that I was going to be outed and uh, just absolutely uh, ashamed and that it was going to destroy me. And um, and I just couldn't stop. So therefore, the only way I could protect my wife, who, who I really loved, was to stay away from her. It's the only solution I had at that time. And so I told her no. But then fast forward a year and a half, November of 19, I had learned quite a bit and accomplished quite a bit in my healing journey. And um, by then I I saw how um, I could reach a point of lifelong healing and that getting the family back together could be the best thing, not just for me and my wife, but for our daughter as well. And so we did that. And in May of 2020, we got remarried. And uh, we'll be celebrating three years remarried coming up here in a couple months. So uh, it's a real story of redemption. And, yeah, um, it really is. And that's... You know, I really think that was what allowed me um, to uh, come up with the idea for the nonprofit. Most people don't realize, but addicts tend to be very intelligent people. There's a, there's a, there's a, what it is, unfortunately, is our excellence gets played out in our addiction. If we can take our our excellence back. That's exactly right. If you can stop the addiction, you have all this capacity and some very amazing and wonderful things come out of that. 
for the men who recovered. And in my case, it was my idea for the biorehabilitation project. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to telling you a lot more about that concept and what we're doing and how folks can help, you know, when we, uh, when we have our second podcast. All right. So I got two things. Okay. If I missed anything about your daughter, if there was any parting words that you wanted to say about your daughter that we missed, is was there anything that you wanted to say there? Uh, you're talking about the daughter that I lost? Yeah, Lauren. Um, no, I think we went into enough. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and then, I think people get it. All right. And then I have this signature question that I asked. Um, seems to be a good question um let's say nobody heard anything that we talked about here in this particular conversation okay what one thing would you want them to know about the healing process sexual addiction and becoming better and with sex addiction because it's so complicated uh you can't really have it be one thing so what's a couple things you want us to know wow um well, the first thing I would say is that there is hope. I think a lot of guys caught up in this think there's no hope. There is. There is a way out. The shed blood of Jesus Christ guarantees there's a way out. Dr. Ted Roberts says that in the Conquer series, and, and I believe it. Um, it cannot be done alone. You really do need to reach out to other men and have a support group uh, to help you overcome this. Um, at the end of that journey is sobriety, lifelong healing, but deeper than that, you know, God's plan for your life is there. You know, he, he knows us. He's known us since he knitted us in our mother's wombs and he has a glorious plan for your life. All the bounty that he has laid out before you, it's there just waiting. And, um, I will say that most guys who get to the end of this journey and reach total recovery feel convicted and compelled to share that powerful feeling of freedom and redemption that they have. And they usually do that by wanting to become a leader and help other men. And I just think it's a beautiful message because, you know, I'm not special. I've had a hard life, but I'm not the only person that's had a hard life. Lots of people have had less than ideal situations in their family of origin lots of people have had tragedies even worse than the ones i've suffered but the message is if you can grow to the point that with god's support you can uh, reach out to other people who have been hurt in exactly the same ways that you've been hurt and share your healing journey with them and, and bring healing and freedom to them I just think that's a great message. Imagine what the world would be like if everybody who suffered through something, if their response was to help others that are going through the same thing. That'd be great. It will. It would be. And what a world it would be. Hey, listen, Alan, um, I definitely appreciate you uh, stopping by, sir, and sharing your story with you, with us. Um, let me acknowledge you for doing it. Uh, First of all, it's not the easiest thing to do, obviously. Uh, I was just sitting there listening to my story the other day, and it's not even easy listening to it. Uh, but, yeah, we appreciate uh, you taking uh, that risk. And, and 
And again, I, I acknowledge you because that was my answer. The exact answer that you give, if we can serve somebody, it's yeah. worth, it's worth it to, to embarrass yourself, but it's not really embarrassing where, I, you know, you can't hold something that I did five years ago when I was ignorant. So it's not embarrassing and, and, and that's not what I'm doing now. So, uh, mm -hmm. that's not what we're doing. There was one, there was one before I leave, there was one thing that you said that, that, that really was like speaking my language. It's a language I use. Uh -huh. Talk What's about that? the lineage. We're talking about shifting lineages, and and that was the exact word that oh, I. Oh yeah, well I was gonna save that for the next one, but um, no, no, no. but here, here it is. You know, when I had this idea for the nonprofit, uh, and, and really I didn't have it. I really think it's a divinely inspired idea. I think God gave me the idea, but it, it provides me with a, a mechanism to to make an eternal investment in the lives of other men who are suffering in the same way that I have suffered. And that's a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. You know, marriages will stay together. Or if it's a single guy or a guy who got divorced and, you know, he can't save his marriage, there's another marriage. There's people that are going to be born because of this type of intercession in the life of a, a porn addicted guy. Um, and so you're affecting their life, but also their legacy and their lineage. And that's just such a powerful investment to make in other people. And when I realized that, I really felt that even though my life has been a train wreck up until the time I got well, that uh, this was just the very elegant and perfect way to redeem it. It gives my life meaning and it gives my little girl who died at 22 months old, you know, her life short as it was, it gives her meaning too. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel a lot better about what happened. And I wanted you to say that, number one, for like people like us that are coaches, but also for people that are addicts, for maybe that they would take the bull by the horns and embrace the fact that, you know, if they correct their behavior, that they're actually shifting their whole family crest. Yeah. Because yeah. this is generational. It there's There's a link in everybody's life to somebody that was an adult in my life and that is my first exposure to the porn. If it wasn't an adult in my life, it was an adult in my best friend's life. Yeah. Something yeah. like yep. that. Yep. So, uh, again, uh, Mr. Alan Texera, we greatly appreciate you stopping by, sir. Um, if you can uh, just let us know how we can get in touch with you, how we can get in touch with the uh, organization you run before we go, please. Sure. Um the website for the buyer rehabilitation project is uh buyer rehabilitation project.org that's all one character string and then dot org um, repeat that again please buyer rehabilitation project.org thank you and uh there's a contact us page there and you can email me or uh, give me a call um with the contact information that's there if you if you'd like to reach out and uh, i look forward to hearing from you I appreciate it. I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate you stopping by. Um, and again, for everybody that's listening, we do have another podcast uh, in the uh, repository there or in the future coming up where we're actually going to get uh, involved in the conversation uh, into Alan's organization. So as always, uh, we appreciate each and every one of you. Um, this is a journey. 
you've invested yep. 2,500 to 7,500 hours into um, what you got. And so it's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort to reverse it. And the best way to speed that up is by getting good guidance and good information. And that's what we've been trying to do. And that's what we'll continue to do each and every week. So with that, drive with care, walk with caution, make today and every day your living masterpiece. Thank you, Alan. Everybody have a nice day. Talk to you later. God bless you. you. See ya.